Seven minutes it is before 8 p.m. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the mighty Metro. And uh, it's our wrap of the top business stories. And uh, we're making sense, of course, of uh, the uh, uh, exit of Greyhound uh, from uh, many of our bus stations and uh, many of uh, the highways and byways of not just South Africa, but the uh, region as well. We do know uh, that uh, it certainly did join many of uh, its competitors and also offering services uh, to the Southern African region. And Nolwantli, uh, you were still saying, you know, this was part of a strategic move on the part of Cap Holdings. Um, and I guess, you know, uh, what some people might not be familiar with is, um, you know, the relationship between Cap Holdings and, of course, that uh, their former parent company, or well, I think it still is their parent company, Steinoff. Steinoff, yes. But I think just to, you know, touch, just to, you know, conclude on this topic, I mean, if you look at their passenger transport segment, which is where... Um, Greyhound sits. It's the lowest margin segment in the operations. And I think part of the strategy to improve the share price is to make sure that they generate adequate returns. And when as a company you're trying to get that adequate returns up and getting your returns above your cost, mm. the first thing to do is cut, you know, cut your losses. And I mean, the transport segment wasn't loss making at the last report. So this is clearly just a move that look, um, let's try to get to that higher ORE as quick as possible. Let's get rid of what the low margin businesses, and it's probably most likely where it is, considering that they were not in a loss making positions as at the June interim results. And mm. there is a relationship with sign off, but they've said many times that there is no, um, from operational perspective, there's segmented, there's sure, no relationship sure. at all, very separate. It's just a very arm's length shareholder and investment company relationship. Mm-hmm. Would you buy this business? All right. The bus business, the Greyhound. No, I'm saying Greyhound in particular. I mean, with the market segment they serve, um, and I guess where, where we think they are now um, in a very tough operating environment. Is this the kind of asset? If it was on offer at a price amenable to you, would it be something that you would buy? So I think ultimately, you know, an investment decision comes down to what returns you can get in light of what cost you're paying. So if I was getting free money, if I was an American investor and I had a balance sheet where, you know, the average cost of funding is, you know, say 3%, then it would make absolute sense to invest in this business. But in a South African environment, so your cost of equity could be between 13 to 15%, depending on the risk premium that they might put on you. Um, it doesn't make sense for me. So as an investor in a South African environment, I wouldn't go for a very low margin business because getting the returns is going to be very tough especially in this kind of environment. Yeah, and um, I mean, I guess, aside from all of the, um, you know, stories that we heard of people's experiences on the buses uh, over the year, and in particular on Greyhound uh, on social media, I guess it's, it's one of those moments. I mean, these guys have been around yeah, since 1984. Um, um, so, so it's certainly, I guess, you know, uh, a notable exit. I mean, if it was a company that had just you know, Vumbulugad from somewhere in the last five years or so, it would be something entirely different. Yeah. So, and it, it, is, it is quite sad given that, you know, it's a brand that's been around. Um, but, you know, we get the sentimental value, but on the other hand, you have owners who really are focused more on, you know, the returns. And I think in this yes. kind of environment, people are not clearly about looking past the cycle, especially when there's, so much uncertainty um, going forward, especially as a country as a whole and structural problems that we're facing. Mm, mm. 
Let's shift our attention from, I guess, the, the passenger transport business, Norandia, and uh, take a look at aluminium products. Now, we saw uh, one of the uh, players in this sector, Huleman, um, uh, in an operational update for the fourth quarter of uh, 2020, um, I guess suggesting that, you know, their performance continues to improve, uh, notwithstanding all of the disruptions of COVID-19. Yes. Um, I think, you know, what Huleman, obviously, you will know it for aluminium for, and as consumers, you'll know it from the retail segments where we go and you obviously buy foil there. Um, but it has been having hardships for quite a while due to demand. And one of the difficulties it faced is as far as the export environment and exporting to other countries is that, um, you know, the other export markets had tariffs in place, input tariffs, which definitely benefits the country that is exporting. But within South Africa, they were not mm. getting that, that benefit. Um, so, you know, with an introduction of an import duty, um, it does create, it changes the game. And, they, you know, it, it affects, you know, the kind of, the revenue they're generating and it supports them because they've been you know kind of struggling in the local market as well and we're starting to the demand is shifting more into exports and south africa has been seen as a lower cost alternative but you know they're not getting the benefit of it as well so i think these these tariffs are definitely a good benefit um and can become more competitive in the in the in the international environment and they are, and it's going to help them go in terms of getting out of the situation. I mean, where we're at now, yeah. I think any kind of regulatory uh, advantage helps you, especially coming in from a position where Hulaman has been, is where demand has waned in over the last couple of years, for in fact, it's been a very long time. I mean, for over five years, I know it's been quite mm. a tough environment. So, definitely going to be a benefit for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, some interesting, I guess, boardroom politics that we saw at the first round AGM last year um, and uh, you know I guess the introduction of that sort of special COVID-19 benefit for some in the management team of um, of that financial services player certainly drew a lot of um, I guess reaction from shareholders uh, who effectively you know uh, I guess you know kicked or vetoed that implementation plan um, and when I say vetoed I mean sort of less than 75 percent of them effectively voted in favor of the remuneration implementation plan. Um, and, and I'm quite interested in, in your view on this, uh, in the context uh, where we find ourselves, you know, in many entities like First Rand, where, you know, uh, a lot of sway is held by institutional investors, pension funds, and many others. Um, and, and to see that this engagement now on your remuneration only drew, you know, a handful of investors, I think uh, probably sort of leaves, leaves us with more questions than answers. Yeah, so I think the you know the two points I'd like to make on this is that the first is that I think in a COVID environment we are all losers, um, and the fact that directors feel the need or the board feels the need to um, make the the executives less of you know less losers than everyone else it's it's it's, it's not acceptable. Um, the fact that you know shareholders are going to materially feel that loss. Um, and there's nothing to compensate for that. There's no dividends in everything. And we understand that, you know, the COVID impact is out of their control. But the losses that have happened from a shareholder perspective were also not out of their control as well, um, not in terms of investors' control. So I think everyone is losing here, and I don't think we should make anyone mm. feel better about it. We are all losers here, and I think we should all take the pain as we have been. 
So I think it's, 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 it was not a good decision on that part to create that in there, especially since every bank is, and we're going to have the banks report results in a month from now. And we everyone compares what one bank is doing to other four because they compare it at the exact same time, very similar, and they just came out to something very different. Mm, the second mm. thing is this, you know, what in, sorry, do you want to say something? No, 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 sure, sure, go ahead. Okay. The second thing is this, you know, what investors typically do, you know, when it comes up to remuneration, it really is an advisory, um, uh, you know, proxy vote. It means that sure. it's just there to hear what investors think. There's nothing in there that requires the board to take action. So there is criticism that First Rand is making about the fact that, you know, they had this, you know, you know, this unfavorable, you know, response to this, uh, the remuneration policy. And then, although you know certain institutional investors voted against it, they didn't follow up on terms of the actual meeting to engage with shareholders. And yes, I agree that investors should follow through. But the second thing is this: Did we investigate in terms of what have been the outcomes when investors did come and engage? What has been the follow-up? Do the actual management mm-hmm. and the board do something about it? So we're only taking one side of the story when there isn't actually mm. enough work in terms of are these boards actually following up and doing what is best in interest and then listening and voicing and implementing shareholder concerns. And that's mm. the key thing there. Do we need, I mean, no, no, do we need like, um, as we often say in the case of politicians, I mean, do, do we need consequence management? Um, and I found it quite interesting, I mean, in, in the article that Anne Crotty uh, uh, put together her, her comparison when it comes to you know situations in the Remco where less than you know three quarters effectively give you give you their thumbs up. Um, the implication in the Australian context is that you know you don't serve on that committee for for about two years or so. Uh, sh- should we be considering something similar here in South Africa? I think you know it doesn't. I mean, two years. If you think about it, right? If the board hasn't done, you know, if they haven't done a good job two years in a row, the people have still gained. The people who are being, you know, being remunerated highly are still going to get whatever they're getting. They still get the money. So you're punishing people after the fact, but the damage is already done. What I would recommend is that we make it a requirement of the Communist Act to have a minimum threshold. I think investors should have a say of what is acceptable. And that's what should be sitting in law because punishing a board member and saying you're not allowed to be on this committee, I mean, the only person who loses that is the, the board. Um, and then it's just a matter of that. They'll probably got seven other seats and some other boards as well already. So it might not necessarily be the biggest loss to them. Shareholders are already overpaying someone that they probably didn't think deserved to pay that high. So I think it's not the right remedy to this. I think the law needs to step in and mm. deal with it, and there should be certain thresholds that become legally binding, as opposed to be an advisory thing or a two-year period of checking out of whether the board is doing the right thing. Two years is too long; mm. too much money gets lost. Sure, you, you know, Lendo, Lendo. I mean, it throws up a lot of questions around the independence of some of the people who who are sent by the shareholders. I, I, I should further add, to go and serve in their interest right, in their oversight of the operations and the activities of the management teams, uh, who are in many cases very handsomely paid. Uh, but it's quite clear for me, I mean, if, if you're spending, as, as we see here in South Africa in many cases, 20, 30 years on a board, accept independence, 
Um, and, and, and in that context, you can't really have an expectation that, you know, these guys aren't going to sign off on, on very handsome pay, paydays uh, for many of the CEOs and management teams who, who they work alongside in, in what clearly become very collusive relationships. Hmm. Um, I definitely agree. And it's important for me to point out the fact that the rules are actually quite different for, for banks because they're, you know, systemic entities and they form a very big part of our, of our economy. And the difference is that the regulator has the final say on who's on that board. So, and the second thing is that the kind of knowledge that is needed is of a high caliber. So if you have someone and the regular thing is good, the likelihood is they're going to try to keep them there as far as possible because you don't want to take a chance on a newbie. You know, that's not how it works, right? So in terms of how it works for for, for the boards of banks specifically, um, you know, they'd rather keep people there longer than possible, longer, as long as possible because, you know, the complexity of board and structures, you just think of regulation and risk management. Those two, those two boards alone have thousands and thousands of documents to go through every time. You can't just bring someone new to just come in there. So I think, you know, there, there is it's a much more complex argument. But as far as just general across the other companies, definitely. Mm, I think, you know, there needs sure. to be change. And that's what's been pushed for a long time. But we do need to solve how it works out in banks as well because they are the most paid among the most board members in, in the JC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, certainly one of the issues that are going to continue uh, to be a, a very vexing matter, especially in a country as unequal as ours, where mm-hmm. you know people can can take a, the kind of payday that uh, I guess was being proposed uh, in that first round uh, proposal sometime last year. No longer before I let you go, ask us big SAA. What's happening here? <laughs> Who knows? Let's ask. Let's ask. Same know, day, the, Greyhound the closes. <laughs> we hear SAA might get an equity partner. What's happening? I mean, you know, I think I want to do it. Does it even matter if we talk about this? Because things will get done. That everyone, everyone except the, you know, the, the, the government disagrees with this. Um, but we hear that they're about to get equity partners. We hear that there's some, you know, people going to come through. Mm, you don't. You don't sound like you trust that. Do you? You know, don't seem I like think, you trust that. I mean, I you can't trust the people when you can't you don't trust the business model, right? Because if it's a bad business model, then the matter who comes in there, the chances of success are very low. Um, so you need to have confidence in the idea of SA first before anything else. Um, and that's why any comes when it comes through probably untested and it's gonna be very hard to have faith. Um, and you know people can back out. They can also just send SAA in to rescue five years from now, and then all the equity that's been thrown in there could come and be lost again. So I think it would be unreasonable to not be pessimistic. But I think the only positive thing I look at is that if there's someone else who's going to come in and inject money, and it's not South African taxpayers' money, I think we just need to take what we can get. Um, I think if we, especially now, when you think about how we need vaccines now, the money to procure those vaccines and the cost that comes with that, you know, everyone will tell you why we're spending on SAA when we should be focusing on this. So I think if someone else is willing to come in and, you know, lessen the burden on the fiscus, I think let's take it. You know, we don't know how it will end. We'll get conflicting stories and people who in, in the Department of Public Enterprises mm. who think it's a good idea. We can't change that. We cannot change that. It's a decision that's been made in spite of all the advice 
from people and, and you know, yeah. you've also been on that panel and you know exactly the condition that's gone on. And mm. it's, now, it's, it's null and void at this point. It's quite interesting, Noloan, just, just as we wrap, I mean, you're saying let's, let's take whatever we can take. Uh, whereas on the other hand, the Department of uh, Public Enterprises is saying, well, we're going to be mum on who some of these people are uh, because we feel if we do disclose that, it might jeopardize our negotiating position. Now, I'm not sure if we have much of that, but um, uh, or I guess any competitive advantage in that negotiation process. But we'll certainly be watching this one closely. Nolwandje, as always, a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking time out to speak to us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that there was Nolan Jemtombe, a market analyst, helping us to uh, wrap up uh, some of the big stories in the marketplace. You, you might maybe have a different view and think, you know, SAA goes into uh, these negotiations with their equity partners uh, probably a lot stronger than we get it, give it credit for. Yeah, let me know. Uh, you can uh, send through those tweets on at MetroFMSA. Use the hashtag MetroFMTalk. In the next few minutes or so, I catch up with Toby Shapshak. We try and make sense of uh, all of these investment apps right through from Robin Hood. Uh, through to the GameStop saga.